As they go, if you will take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. And I'll be starting in verse 17. According to the Bible, the divine love of God was the driving force behind the establishment of the church. The church is founded on the love of God. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? It's God's love that motivated the sending of the son. And Jesus so loved the church that he laid down his life. He laid down his life for the church. It was the love that Jesus had for the church that motivated the action of laying down his life for the church. Before Jesus was crucified, he had a word for the church and he said that it's your love for one another that's going to be an essential part of your witness. People will know who you are. They'll know that you're followers of me, my disciples, if you have love one to another. It's your love that will be your witness to the church. So the church is founded on the love of God, the love of, of the Father, the love of the Son, and it is witnessed by the love of God's people one to another. God used the Apostle Paul's love for the church, his specific love for the church at Thessalonica to help establish that young church during the first century. It's Paul's incredible love for this church that is on display all over this letter that he wrote. It's a love letter that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And so I want to encourage you to look for that theme, pay attention for that theme of Paul's love for this church as I read our passage. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and starting in verse 17. And I'm reading all the way through chapter th the end of chapter 3. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may the God and Father 
himself and, and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for his help. Father, thank you for this moment that you have brought us to where we are seated under the authority of your word at your table. And we pray that you'd help us to understand these words, to believe them, and to apply them to our lives in church. Amen. Well, from this passage, it's clear, I think it's clear, that Paul loves the Thessalonians with a sacrificial love, a love that puts the needs of others in front of his own needs, which is really the only kind of real love that there is. Twice, Paul says, he's so concerned to know how the Thessalonians are doing with their faith that he can bear it no longer. He can't stand it any longer. He's not just curious. He can't bear not knowing because he loves them so much. He's thinking about them all the time. And so, at great sacrifice to himself, he sends his beloved partner in the gospel, his son in the faith, Timothy. Now just think about that. Paul is in Athens with Timothy. They're both together engaged in faithful gospel ministry. It is a very difficult, idolatrous place to be proclaiming the name of Jesus. And you know, as well as I do, what a blessing it is to have someone alongside of you when you're facing challenges, when you're facing trials. It can feel very isolating to walk through those challenges alone. And it's so much better, it's so much easier to face those things when you've got someone standing next to you. And yet Paul loved the Thessalonians so much that he was willing to send his beloved Timothy to go and be with them while Paul stayed behind and ministered in Athens alone. On top of that, you notice Paul says that he himself wanted to go over and over again, he desired to go back and visit them, but Satan blocked his plans. Well, it would have been understandable if, if Paul would have said, well, we tried, but Satan blocked our plans. And, and if I can't go to Thessalonica, I guess no one's going. And anyways, there's loads of work to do in Athens. But that's exactly what he doesn't do. He says, all right, well, if I can't go, well, then I'll send my right-hand man, my brother in the faith, Timothy. And I'll just have to do without him for a while while he goes and visits the church at Thessalonica. Sending Timothy, just that act alone, sending Timothy, was a totally selfless act. It was a concrete and practical picture of Paul's sacrificial love for the church at Thessalonica, putting their needs ahead of his own. When I, when I think of that, that kind of selfless practical, sacrificial, concrete love. I thought of that little motto that's on the, on the graphic for the, for the fundraiser for Jacob. Did you catch that? Did you see that little graphic there? It says, his fight is our fight. His fight is our fight. That's, that's it, right? That's right. He's not in this alone. We're not cheering from the sidelines. We're all, we're all in this. That's how it's supposed to feel in the church. His fight is our fight. That's definitely how Paul felt about the church 
in Thessalonica, right? Their fight is my fight. Their persecutions are my persecutions. Their victories, I'm rejoicing too. Their needs, I feel it too. I want to help too. And that's how we should all be feeling about one another within the church and towards the global church in general. I'll give a, I'll give a little visual picture of this kind of humble, loving, others first kind of attitude. I'll just try to plant this image in your mind so you can be encouraged and reminded of it. It's a, this, this scene happened at an intentional Christian community. It's, a, it's this global network of communities. They're called the Bruderhof communities. Maybe you've heard of them. They started in Germany, I think, in the 20s, but now they're all over. Anyways, this is a true story of what happened one day at a Bruderhof community. These families, they, on these communities, they live together, they work together, they worship together, they raise their kids together, and uh, inevitably, sooner or later, someone's going to sin against someone, right? That's what humans do. And so in this community, there was a rule. If you've wronged someone, if you've sinned against someone, then you're expected that you will publicly, wa- publicly wash the feet of the person that you've wronged. Literally, publicly, wash their feet in front of everyone else as an expression of your love for them and your humility uh, and, and reconciliation. And it was all done in public, not in private, so that everybody knew, okay, they're, they're good, they're reconciled. So one day, uh, shortly after lunch, and one member of the community realizes that he has spoken in, a, in a, just an unkind, kind of a sharp, unkind way to another member of the community. And so this person immediately asks for forgiveness and begins to crouch down and reach for the feet of the person that he's wrong. He's going to wash, he's going to just get it done right now. I'm going to wash those feet right now. But the person who was having their feet approached realized that they had actually done something first to provoke the other one to say the harsh thing that they said. And so that person hit the ground too. And so now you've got two grown men on the ground, crawling in a circle, chasing after each other's feet to see who could wash the other one's foot. That's the image. I just want to plant it in your mind so you can call it up anytime you need it. That image, right? Two brothers in Christ competing with each other to see who gets the privilege of washing the other's foot. The church is supposed to be a place where we compete with one another to out-honor one another. The church is supposed to be a place where we're so deeply committed to loving one another that we spend very little time focused on our own individual needs because we are so committed to loving and serving the whole. That is clearly how Paul felt about the church at Thessalonica, caring very little about his own needs and caring very much about the needs of the church in Thessalonica. And that is clearly how we're all supposed to think about the church. That brings us to point number two. Paul loves the church at Thessalonica so much that his his prime desire for them, what he wants to see more than anything else, is for their faith to be firm. Did you spot that? He's so concerned about their faith. He loves them so much that he's concerned about their faith. Five times in this short passage that I read, five times he refers to their faith. So what what is he talking about? When he refers to their faith, what is it? That question is a little harder to answer than maybe it appears at first. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he has two great chapters on faith. 
In those chapters, he talks about the layers of meaning. When Christians use the word faith, it mean, it's a multi-layered word. On the one hand, faith can mean just belief or assent to a, to a set of truths or doctrines. I believe that. I have faith that it's true. To have faith is, in that sense, to take God at his word and believe the message of the scriptures, to believe that the Bible is true, to have faith that the Bible is God's word. Well, that's definitely true. Faith is not less than that, but faith is that and more. If you stop there, you might mistakenly think that you could simply exercise faith by exercising your mind, your intellect, right? A decision to believe a certain set of propositions about God. But that alone is not faith. The Apostle James points out that even the demons believe certain things about God. That doesn't mean they have faith in God. So the next layer of faith is that not only do we believe the contents of Scripture, but we also trust the one who inspired the Scriptures. Belief and trust. Trust is a relational word. It goes beyond just intellectual assent. For example, it wouldn't be hard to think of an example where maybe I believe what someone is saying, but I don't trust them. Right? I think they're telling the truth. I believe it. But I don't think they have my best interests in mind, so I don't trust them. You can believe someone and not trust them. So part of having faith means not only believing that God's word is true, but trusting that God is good and loving. For example, I'll just give an example. For for Reformed Christians, not only do we affirm the truth of the doctrine of election, right? We believe the doctrine of election with our minds, but we also trust that God is loving and good, and therefore we don't wring our hands and we say, well, I don't like it, but I guess I have to believe it because the Bible says it. No, we trust. We trust that God is loving and powerful and good, and therefore we believe that what he does is an expression of his love and power and goodness. And so we believe that electing some unto salvation before the foundation of the world is loving and good because that's God's character, and we trust him. We trust Him. Even when we don't fully understand Him, we trust Him. So faith is believing the contents of the Bible. Faith is trusting the author of the Bible. But finally, faith faith can never be content to live in the land of theory. Faith necessarily results in obedience. If you believe someone and if you trust someone, you will obey that person when they give an instruction. You won't argue back. You'll be convinced that this person is truthful and trustworthy, and worthy of obedience. That's faith. That's, the, that's a layered combination of belief, trust, and obedience all together, equaling faith. And that's what Paul wants to see in the Thessalonians. He cannot bear not knowing if they are experiencing that kind of faith. And so he sends Timothy to go and check it out and report back. But here's the thing about faith. It's, faith is not static. It's not something like a light switch where he's just saying, well, Timothy, just go and check if they have the faith switch switched on because then they're good. That's not how faith works. It's not either you have it or you don't. Faith can grow or shrink. Faith can be strong or weak. And so faith needs to be cultivated and stewarded. To put it more simply, faith needs to be fed so that it can grow and get stronger. So Paul sends Timothy to check and make sure that that's happening. 
He says he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. If, if faith can be strengthened, then it can also be weakened. And Paul loves the Thessalonians too much to let that happen. So he says, check on their faith. Make sure they're feeding it. Make sure it's growing. Make sure it's healthy. Because moods change. Circumstances change. Feelings change. God's truth does not change. And so it's important for us to feed our faith so that it's healthy and strong and able to endure when we face trials and challenges and persecutions. So how do you feed your faith? Here's the thing. Faith feeds on the truth. Faith eats truth. And so we read God's word. We sing songs that proclaim and celebrate biblical truth. We fellowship with other Christians who also believe the truth. And we talk about the truth. We read books that encourage and build us up in our faith. This is one of the reasons I encourage Christians to read Christian biographies, because they feed our faith. Christian biographies are faith food. I once heard an atheist scientist, he was making fun of Christians, and he said, look, we scientists, we don't get together every week and sing songs about gravity. We don't, we don't encourage each other to keep believing in gravity. So why do Christians do that with their beliefs? They must not really believe very confidently if they have to get together every week to remind each other to keep believing. So that's kind of a funny observation, but here's the flaw in that thinking. There's nothing at stake when it comes to believing in gravity. There's no opposition to believing in gravity. It's never hard or discouraging to believe in gravity. And if ever you start to, start to doubt gravity, all you need to do is drop a pencil and you are once again convinced. Faith isn't like that. It can be hard on your faith, right? When you see a war dragging on and on and you see casualties mounting and you see no end in sight and you say, what, what is going on here? It can be hard on your faith when an earthquake hits in the middle of the night and hundreds and thousands of lives are lost, just gone. It can be hard to watch a loved one suffer. It can be especially hard to watch a loved one suffer and to know that if God wanted, he could intervene, but for some reason he isn't. That's hard. It can be hard to believe and to trust and to obey when nothing is going the way you hoped or prayed that it would. And that's why we need each other, right? That's exactly why we gather together every week and remind ourselves of what we already know. Because faith needs to be fed, and the feeding of our faith is a community project. Right? It's not a sit alone in your room and feed your faith kind of a thing. We gather and we encourage and we love and we build up one another. I'll give one small example. This example's on my mind because I just saw this guy a couple of weeks ago for the first time in, in a long, long time. His name is Mark. This is the story. It's not much of a story. And it's just what came to my mind. His name is Mark. Uh, I, one day, I probably maybe almost 20 years ago, I just felt the Lord put it on my mind to pray for Mark. I didn't know why. I didn't have a reason to pray for him. I attended church with him, and I felt like I was supposed to pray for him. To be honest, I often ignore those little prompts and just think, well, that's not God, it's just me. But for some reason, this time I acted on it. I prayed for him. I decided to send him a note telling him I prayed for him. I didn't know what to say on the note because I didn't know what to pray for him. So I just wrote out a psalm on the note longhand, and mailed it to him, and forgot about it. Little did I know, that letter landed on his desk 
at a moment when he was sitting there at his desk, feeling nauseous, stressed out, wondering what's going to happen to his family, wondering if it's time for him to end it all because of a business venture that he had launched and put all of his resources into and that was now failing. He was despairing in that moment. And his testimony, I just, he, he just repeated it a couple weeks ago when I saw him, his testimony is that reading that simple handwritten psalm in that moment changed his life. Now, do I get credit for that? Absolutely not. I didn't do anything. But I use it as an example of how God uses us to feed one another's faith. And those opportunities are around us all the time. What if every single one of us decided that we'll take the remainder of the month of September, what is that, like three weeks, and find one way each day to feed someone else's faith, someone else's faith in a small way? One way each day, feed someone else's faith through a note, a word of encouragement, an act of service, something. Would our church be a different place by the end of September? I guarantee it would. That's the kind of faith that Paul's looking for here. He's looking for a faith that's healthy and growing. And he's looking for a church where the members are actively looking to build one another up in the faith, feeding one another's faith. And the report that he got back from Timothy was that, yes, Paul, it's happening. Not perfectly. There's still ground to take, but it's happening. And so Paul is still praying that he can visit in person and he says, supply what's lacking in your faith. So obviously there's room to grow. But he's thrilled that they're moving in the right direction and growing in their faith. And I hope that that's true of us as well. Too many churches have faith like human bodies. Human bodies grow really rapidly at first and then they kind of level out, right? I remember how disappointed I was when I realized this is it. <laughs> 6'1", that's all I get. I'm not, I'm not growing anymore. I was so sad. I always wanted to be 6'6". Didn't happen. Well, it's even more tragic when a church stops growing, right? They grow like a weed at first, and then they just kind of level out at the spiritual equivalent of 6 foot 1 inch instead of continuing to grow. Paul, Paul's not content for the church at Thessalonica to level out. He's not. He wants them to keep growing. Finally, Paul loves the church so much that he feels the need, he feels compelled to warn them of the dangers that lie ahead. He says it in verses 2 and 4. He says that he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith so that they won't be unsettled by the trials that the church faces. Paul says, you know, I told you, you know that you're destined for this. We were with you. We told you to expect this type of persecution. And sure enough, now here it is. We're all experiencing it. Those verses, when he does that, that, what I thought of, what that reminds me of, when the pilot comes on the speaker after takeoff, you know this moment, and the pilot comes on the speaker and he says, well, we spotted some rough air. <laughs> rough air on the radar. And so it's going to be a bumpy flight and I'm just going to go ahead and keep the seatbelt sign on the whole time. Now, I hate flying. I hate it. And hearing, hearing that kind of announcement just makes my heart sink. I'm just like, ah, oh, the whole flight, we're going to be bouncing around up here. But the only thing that I hate worse is when the pilot doesn't make that announcement, and then you hit the rough air. <laughs> because then you don't know what's happening. 
At least when it's announced ahead of time, you know that, okay, I don't like this, but everything's going according to plan, and the pilot saw this coming. This is what he said would happen, so it's okay. Well, that's what Paul's doing here, right? That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, I see some rough air on the radar, okay? And so I'm telling you now, expect it, right? It's coming. So when it hits, I don't want it to upset your faith because when it hits, I want you to remember, oh yeah, Paul told us, this is what happens. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, look, when the hard times come, not if, but when the hard times come, I want your faith to be solid. I want your faith to be strong. I want you to be in a good, healthy, secure place so that you can withstand those trials. Here's the irony. It's the faith of the, the Thessalonians that causes them to be persecuted, right? They're being persecuted for their faith. And it's also the faith of the Thessalonians that enables them to endure the persecution. Both. Both. Make no mistake. Your faith is going to result in persecution. And in many, many ways, your life would be easier, not better, not better, but easier if you didn't have faith. But by God's grace, you do have faith. And so when the persecution to your faith comes, hold fast to your faith and let your faith sustain you. And how is our faith going to sustain us through the hard times? Because if we are believing and trusting and obeying God, then that means we are walking in fellowship with God and we are walking in fellowship with one another. And Jesus said that not even the gates of hell are able to break that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the love that's on display in this passage, for the way that Paul loved the church at Thessalonica, for the example he gives of selfless and sacrificial love. And I pray that we too would be marked by that kind of love for one another, that kind of selfless and sacrificial love for one another. And I pray for our faith. Paul obviously cared very much about the faith of the Thessalonians. And we too, I pray that we too would have faith that's strong and healthy and growing. And I pray that we would feed our faith, that you would help us to feed our faith so that it's strong and healthy. And so, Lord, I pray that when trials or persecutions or turbulent air affects us, I pray that we would rest. Rest knowing that you love us, you are our God, and we are your people, and you're with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.